WHMP. Welcome. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is off today. He will be back on Monday. We will be joined in just a few moments by Mindy Dom, State Representative Mindy Dom from the 3rd Hampshire District. We want to share, I want to share, uh, a bit of an opinion piece from Thursday's New York Times by Nicholas Kristof, who is, I think it's fair to say, one of the conservative uh, voices on the New York Times editorial pages. And I often disagree with him, but this editorial this op-ed piece really, really uh, is poignant, and I found it very moving, so I'd like to share it with you. It is under the headline, Despite Their Losses, These Israelis Oppose Invading Gaza. It says, No one understands terrorism more viscerally than Meos Inan. His 78-year-old father and 75-year-old mother were among those massacred by Hamas this month in southern Israel. He mourns his parents, and he despairs for old friends who have been kidnapped by Hamas. Yet he also fears that the unbearable losses his family endured are now being used to justify an impending ground invasion of Gaza. And what does this person say who lost his parents, his 75-year-old mother, his 78-year-old father, friends, and others close to him. I don't stop crying, he told me. That would be to Nicholas Kristof. I don't stop crying, he told me in the hospital. I'm sorry, I misread that. I don't stop crying, he told me in the hostel he runs here in Tel Aviv. I'm crying for my parents. I'm crying for my friends. I'm crying for those who are kidnapped. I'm crying for the victims on the Palestinian side, and I'm crying for all the victims that are going to suffer. Christoph goes on to say this. I've been following the Middle East, I've been following the Middle East conflict for most of my life, and I can't remember a time of such despair, trauma, and mutual mistrust. It's heartbreaking to see the collapse of all hope and this month may be the nadir, the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust and a devastating air assault and siege of Gaza that has claimed even more lives there. I suggest to listeners that you read this piece. Christoph goes on to say, where are the better angels in so many words? He goes on to say that this person who he's been writing about, who opposes the invasion of Gaza, is someone to be emulated because he shows that we can, we can, in fact, invoke and access our better, better angels. As for this person who just lost his parents, Christoph writes this, if even people like him, personally shattered by a barbaric terror attack, can muster the clarity to understand that relentless bombardment and a ground invasion may not help, perhaps there's hope for the rest of us. May we learn from their wisdom and humanity. And I agree with that. I think this is a horrifying, 
horrifying situation. The barbaric terrorist attack on innocent civilians, older people and children, and murdering them and capturing them and taking them as hostages, all in violation of the law of war, is appalling. And yet vengeance, simply for the sake of vengeance, is also, also destructive. There is no end game that I can see for Israel. If Israel destroys Gaza or more of Gaza, it will not destroy Hamas. And if Israel takes over Gaza, going in will look like the easy part because getting out will be nearly impossible. An invasion of Gaza is an invitation to an endless war. Representative Mindy Dom, I know that we usually talk about your legislative duties and what is happening on Beacon Hill, but for me this week, I can't get over what is happening in Israel and Gaza. And if you would indulge me, you're one of the smartest people I know. You are an informed citizen of the world. And I would appreciate if you would be willing to share with us what your thoughts are about what is happening in the Middle East today. Thank you, Bill, and good morning. And good morning to everyone on the radio. I hope you can hear me okay. I'm taking this with my phone in my car. And so I appreciate the flexibility of being able to talk with you, but I hope it's, the sound is okay. Sounds okay. Um, great. So I wish I had wisdom on this. I think, you know, I look at what's going on in Israel and in Gaza, and I'm filled actually with um, sadness um, and a, a real painful acknowledgement about how complicated it is. And also, you know, and I'm not sure it has to be that way, but I know that it is complicated. I know it's complicated to be Jewish and um, also, you know, sort of advocate and be supportive of humanitarian aid at, the, at a time when we really need to also be focusing on releasing hostages. And I really want to say that. I think the two things have to be, um, they're hand in hand. We have to insist on the release of hostages, and we also have to understand that there's humanitarian aid that needs to get through. And, you know, some part of me also feels like some Palestinians who are living in Gaza are also um, kind of hostages because they are used as human shields. They are... Um, sort of put in harm's way in a deliberate political fashion. But what happened on October 7th, I so agree with you, Bill. It's just I mean, horrific when we hear the accounts of terrorists going literally door to door to just kill and murder um, people and kidnap people, babies, you know, grandparents. I just, you know, half of families. It's just, you know, it really, there's no getting around the fact that that, was a, that that is a terrorist act. Those are terrorists that have to be dealt with as terrorists. But we also have to recognize not all Palestinians are terrorists. Um, and if we start to sort of extrapolate what happened on October 7th, like on Kibbutzim, to all people of a whole nation, we're really going down a very, very dangerous, dangerous path that I think sort of betrays the morality that we start with, to tell you the truth. 
Um, but it's complicated. I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm hearing your heartbreak too, um, about what's happening. So, you know, when I, a couple of days after, um, the terrorist events of October 7th, I went to a community event that was being held in several synagogues in the Valley. And I went to the one in Amherst at JCA, which Rabbi Wiener, um, graciously led. And it was in person and on Zoom. And there were about I, maybe a total of 60 participants, if you count both um, ways of participating. And at one point he said, you know, anybody who knows somebody who's um, impacted in Israel by these events, whether it be that they were murdered, they're kidnapped, they have a family or friend or neighbor who's been, or they've been called up to service, um, if you'd like to share that person with us, please come forward. And I was shocked, really surprised, how in this little small town in Western Massachusetts, how many people had connections and knew people who had been directly and indirectly impacted. And um, we, we can't um, lose sight of that either, that there are people in our community in Massachusetts who are directly and indirectly impacted. Um, I have to say that if I, I'm sorry, I didn't think I had much to say, and apparently I'm not taking a breath, but um, all, I, we can't also ignore the fact that this is all happening in the context of rising anti-Semitism in the country, in our country, and in the world, and also that this can lead and has led to Islamophobia and anti-Muslim attacks and speech. And you know, it's like they are brothers. They are brothers and their sisters in the same thing. And we have to be ready to respond to those voices and acts of hate with unequivocal rejection, um, denouncing, um, and response. And I really want to stress the response piece because I think this is where we as community members have to play a role. We have to make sure that our institutions in our communities in Western Massachusetts, whether they be our town governments, our schools, our classrooms, are ready to respond to voices and actions of hate and be able to discern what is hate in this climate and not, and not allow hate to masquerade as political speech when it's actually hate speech. Um, and so I've been also um, I've received phone calls from neighbors, Jewish neighbors, Muslim neighbors, who are facing some of this. And our schools and our classrooms, particularly for our kids, have to be able to respond not only to the kids who are being the targets, especially to the kids who are witnesses and to their greater communities. And if we don't know how to do that, then we have to make sure that we get the skills and the resources to do that. Um, you know, in Ma Massachusetts, in the past couple of years, we passed the law that would require um, before kids graduate from school, uh, high school in Massachusetts, that they get some kind of genocide education. And there's professional development for teachers that can help with that and also resources. And we have to kind of check in with our school districts, say, what are you doing about that? And what are you doing about hate speech that happens right in our neighborhoods, right on Main Street, right on Pleasant Street, um, in the classrooms? And we have to call upon ourselves to make sure that we're responding to that right now. I'll take a breath. We are speaking with State Representative Mindy Dom. 
I want to ask the representative more about how both Jews and Muslims are being targeted now and how we as a community and as a commonwealth will respond. And I, I want to come back to that topic. But I also want to ask about what has been happening in the representative's district. So let's do that for a moment. 57 people arrested at UMass protest. This is the headline of the Daily Hampshire Gazette today. Yesterday's headline, again, top of the fold, page one, students, colon, stop Gaza siege. And the protests at UMass seem to involve, and, and there have been 57 arrests, as we note, uh, the protests at UMass are pro-Palestinian. Uh, and what strikes me about the protests is not the call for a ceasefire, which is, makes humanitarian sense to be sure, uh, and not the call for uh, a, a, a two-state solution, um, which is somewhat buried in, in the remarks of the protesters, but that there is no acknowledgement of the initial terrorist attack by Hamas. And, and that strikes me, because if we don't recognize each other's humanity, how are we ever going to come to a resolution of this intractable political, economic, social, and religious, and cultural war between Hamas and Israel? I wonder if you have some thoughts about that, Representative. I think you said that beautifully, Bill. I think that um, when we fail to recognize the terrorist acts and only hold one party responsible for what they're doing and not the other, we risk justifying the terrorist act. And that cannot happen. We cannot. We cannot justify terrorism. Um, and, you know, uh, I recall the words, of, and have said this to people, we can't also confuse the terrorist with the oppressed. That's the other piece of it. Um, but I think that, you know, I've, I've mentioned this to some people. I'm trying to get sort of guidance on my, for myself and to root myself into, in the words and the actions of the organizations that are in Israel that have been working so hard for decades around peace that include both Israeli um, and Palestinian uh, people. And particularly, I've been watching very carefully in the Internet, thankfully we have that kind of um, communication, with a group called Women Wage Peace, which has um, brought together women from both communities um, over the many years to fight for a peace between um, Israel and Palestine. It has really sort of been responsive in all this. And that's why I start out saying we have to call for the unequivocal release of hostages, and we also have to sort of um, understand the need for humanitarian aid. And I understand that yesterday, I think um, President Biden, although he hasn't called for a ceasefire because that has, I think, political ramifications, they've called for a quote-unquote humanitarian pause. And I think that's probably a good way of describing it because we need to make sure um, that there's humanitarian aid and that we're not that they're not creating another humanitarian crisis on the heels of um, the crisis that Israel has already felt. But, you know, the politics in Israel, you know, 
are a lot like the politics of America when Trump was uh, president. There's a lot of people who don't like what the government's doing, but when they, as a community, they're facing terrorist attacks on them, they are going to um, join together and be united. And I, you know, respect that. Um, I respect the fact that a lot of the people um, who are the survivors in the kibbutz attack, their family members who are now hostages were very active in the peace movement. And so, and they're still asserting the need to release the hostages at the same time that they're also um, empathetic and um, with the humanitarian crisis. We have to kind of hold two things at the same time, and we should be able to do that. And we should be able to do that without justifying um, the terrorism that happened on October 7th. We are so, speak- Let me know. We are speaking with State Representative Mindy Dom. We'll be back in just a moment. More with the representative after this. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The future of joint pain relief is here. It's QC Kinetics, advanced regenerative medicine. This is amazing stuff. If you've been told more steroids or surgery are your only options, don't move so fast. Get a second opinion and learn more about how you can harness your body's own healing agents to attack that joint pain. I'm talking about lasting relief. QC Kinetics doesn't mask the pain. These treatments go to the very root of the problem. Using concentrated healing properties placed directly in your aching joints to restore and repair that damaged tissue. Imagine living your life this fall with no more pain in your knees, hips, shoulder, or back and without drugs, downtime, or surgery. Listen, life is about motion and QC Kinetics is giving people their lives back with these all-natural treatments. Call the local medical professionals and get a free consultation today. QC Kinetics, the nation's leader in regenerative medicine. Call 413-992-5450. That's 413-992-5450. 413-992-5450. I'm Sarah McEwen, the Nursing Director for Emergency and Ambulatory Services at Cooley Dickinson Hospital. Community hospitals are the cornerstone of health, healing, and well-being for our local community. It's a privilege and a pleasure to take care of our community, of you and the people you love. During this season of thanks, the Cooley Dickinson team is grateful to the community that supports us through your kind words, generous gifts, and legacy plans. Please visit us at cooleydickinson.org giving. Reading is one of life's great pleasures. Having a community bookstore makes it even better. Broadside Bookshop is a community-minded, woman-owned, independent bookstore in downtown Northampton, where you can browse to your heart's content. For book lovers, Broadside is home away from home. You can order virtually any book on the Broadside website and pick it up at the store or have it sent to your door. If you love books, you'll love Broadside Bookshop. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. We continue our conversation with State Representative Mindy Dom. We've been talking about Hamas and Israel and the reactions and responses to the terrorist attack and to uh, Israel's bombardment of Gaza. I was interested in the uh, front page of the Gazette today, 57 students arrested at UMass protest for a number of reasons. One is that the students were calling for the university to take an institutional stand against Israeli policies and what Israel is doing in Hamas and it, in Hamas to Hamas and to Gaza, and I am 
really interested in this question of whether or not a university, and in particular a public university, should be taking institutional stands that are political in nature. Huh. And, and I, I remember being in college demanding that universities take institutional stands against the Vietnam War. But I am also cognizant that institutions, particularly public institutions, taking institutional stands can have a real chilling effect uh, among, uh, among members of its community and really restrict free speech for which universities have to stand and have to stand four square against uh, censorship and a chilling effect. And I'm wondering if you have some thoughts about that, Representative Dom, as long as we're mired in complicated questions today. <laughs> well, and I don't know if I'm the best person to be responding to it, but um, I, too, demonstrated when I was in college against institutions, um, investments in different um, ways. I you know, was pretty active in the divestment movement from South Africa when I was in college at Barnard. Um, my uh, kids have been very active in movements in their generation around, um, you know, divesting from mass in private incarceration and mass incarceration. But I think I, I, I really agree. Um, what you just said about how these kind of positions can have a chilling effect. And that's exactly what we need to fight against. Like I'm against um, gagging a pro-Palestinian professor, just like I would be against gagging a pro-Israeli professor, right? Like campuses are where those dialogues should be able to happen without threats, without military threats, without physical threats, um, without uh, career threats, um, if they're done like respectfully. And, you know, that's where we should be able to have the dialogue. I'm also, I'm, I don't want to judge the students that demonstrated. I think, you know, they have every right to demonstrate. I do think they, they have the same right to demonstrate on a public as a private institution, although maybe calling on a private institution to divest um, has more influence because it's the institution's money, not the public's money. Um, but I'm not so sure um, about the call, about the students kind of defending Hamas piece of it. That part feels like that's where they've sort of went on that path where they're justifying what's happened on October 7th. And that's a mistake. And I can't accept that. I can't um, support that. Um, but I think they have every right to demonstrate uh, what they believe in. Um, and they have actually every right to call on what they want to you know, call for. I don't necessarily support that, but I definitely don't support um, saying that somehow the Hamas actions on October 7th were political acts. They weren't, in my opinion. They were fascist, militaristic, terrorist acts. And I don't want to lose sight of that, and I'm not going to let go of that. Let me add one piece. This is from the jump page on today's in today's Gazette. The protest and sit-in at UMass, which resulted in 57 arrests for, of students for trespassing, refusing to leave the building when it was closing at the end of the day. This was not the only one locally involving college students. Smith College students also walked out of their classes and were among more than 500 people who made the short journey to march in front of L3 Harris Technologies in Northampton, protesting what they argue is the weapon manufacturer's role in the conflict of the Middle East. Part of the appeal was to L3 Harris employees asking them to walk off their job, and I'm quoting from the Gazette now, 
refuse to continue making weapons being used to kill Palestinians. Mm. Along with demilitarized, demilitarized Western Massachusetts, the protest was organized by the Anti-Imperialist Action Committee, Berkshire Communists, Palestine Action U.S., River Valley Party for Socialism and Liberation, and Smithies for Justice in Palestine. Interesting amalgam of groups. That said, well, we're down to our last minute. Representative Dom, how about a final thought from you? Um, I just really appreciate you raising these issues, Bill, and giving people an opportunity to think them through. They're complicated. Let's lead with our hearts and our love. Um, let's call for the release of hostages and call for humanitarian aid to Gaza. And let's call for talks of peace in the Middle East. It doesn't end just with um, humanitarian aid. Let's move towards, if it's a two-state solution, to peace where people can live together and we can move forward to the future um, and shake off that past that seems to prevent us from doing that. I really appreciate those words, Representative Dom, and I think it's worth noting that when we conflate Hamas with the people of Gaza, we are making a mistake. I do not believe that Hamas represents the majority of the people of Gaza at all. And there has not been an election in Gaza since 2006. And Hamas is a terrorist organization. And most people in Gaza, I do not believe, are. Representative Minadon, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Bill. Sometimes. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Sarah Robertson. At yesterday's sit-in inside a UMass Amherst administration building, 57 students were arrested for refusing to leave the building, demanding that the university must cut ties with the weapons manufacturer Raytheon and condemn violence against Palestinians in Gaza by the Israeli government. In a statement, the university said the protesters' demands did not align with the university's publicly stated positions. However, when the radical group from Gaza called Hamas attacked Israeli citizens earlier this month, Chancellor Ray said the university vehemently condemned the violence. Raytheon was one of the largest employers of UMass Amherst graduates from the class of 2021. And the university has a relationship with the company that offers business students a 10% discount on master's degrees or graduate certificates with all online classes. Two young men found dead with gunshot wounds in the woods of northern Vermont have been identified as Eric White of Chicopee and Jaheem Solomon of Pittsfield. Police are investigating the deaths as homicides, calling it a complex investigation that they are seeking the public's help with. The men told their families they were leaving to visit the Stowe, Vermont area on October 15th and were reported missing days later. Anonymous tips regarding the case can be submitted to the Vermont State Police website. National Prescription Drug Take Back Day is this Saturday. People looking to safely dispose of unneeded medications can drop them off at any of the 14 locations in Hampshire and Franklin County on Saturday between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Those locations include several area police departments, as well as select schools and stores. Since the program began in 2011, nearly 70,000 pounds of prescription drugs have been collected nationwide. Check the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration website for more information about drop-off locations near you. Build a stone wall? How hard can it be? One stone on top of another. Stones aren't Legos, and you're not a stonemason. 
tall beyond landscape. The take back your weekend people. They'll build that wall and that patio and the steps. You want a pond? Call beyond. Schedule now. They get busy. Well, not as busy as you. Take back your weekend. Book a fall cleanup, a stone wall, a pond, a patio. Go beyond. Call beyond landscape. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Greenfield Savings Bank with offices all throughout Hampshire and Franklin counties. Greenfieldsavings.com. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. Hi, this is Scott Trout of Cordell & Cordell. If you're a dad who is facing divorce, there are extra layers of stress that may include stereotypes and assumptions. No two situations are the same. Our legal experience and dedication prepare us for whatever legal challenges we face together. You need a partner you can count on. For more than 30 years, Cordell & Cordell has represented men in divorce. Schedule an appointment with one of Cordell & Cordell's Boston area attorneys, 10 Cabot Road, Suite 210, Medford, Massachusetts, 02155. Hi, I'm Martha Stewart. Every year, more than 4 million pets enter shelters here in the United States. My friends at American Humane have been helping animals since 1877. The goal is to ensure that pets have a safe shelter, especially during natural disasters. Adopting a shelter pet allows shelters to help more animals awaiting care. Please consider adopting today and take some time to learn more about American Humane's other work at AmericanHumane.org. This is our Your State You segment with Max Page, who is the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, who has with him and us today a very special guest because we want to talk about, want to talk about with her, teachers' rights or right to strike or not, as it is in Massachusetts. But first, Max, let's take a minute. A big victory for unions and for the United Auto Workers yesterday. So give us your reflections on that, if you would, please. And then we're going to get to the right of teachers to strike in Massachusetts. But first, the UAW and what has happened at Ford and what is likely to happen at the two other major car manufacturers or with them. Yes. Uh, so I was actually at a rally at the state house with a lot of union members, but also a lot of state um, legislators the morning of Wednesday and that announcement about the first victory of UAW, that is getting a tentative agreement with Ford, uh, came out later that day. Um, and it's really a tremendous victory. And I think it's a victory, of course, for the UAW workers, but it is also a powerful statement about the power of strikes and also um, kind of a, a statement about the kind of contracts that should be fought for across the um, across the country. And I'll just give you an example. So I mean, one is the simple idea that Sean Fain, the president of the UAW, um, lifted up, which is that we have to get a full fair share of the profits that the workers created. And so they have secured a 25% overall pay increase. But that's not nearly all. They also uh, got dramatic increases for pensions. This was something also that was sort of given back during the, the, the 
Great Recession um, in the early 2000s. And the, the workers have said, and the UAW has said in this strike, we, if, if the comp- we gave back when the company was in trouble, we should get back when we helped the company um, become enormously profitable. And remember, high profits uh, deserve high wages. That's been the slogan of the of the UAW. Those are not profits that not came out of anywhere. Those are produced by those workers. Final point, let me just make, there's many, many pieces of this contract, but a really key thing is that they are going to eliminate the tiers. That is, you have people side by side doing the same job, but because one person came in later, they're getting much lower pay. And that was, um, that just that was just absolutely undermining the union. It's deeply unjust. And uh, the UAW leadership and the bargaining teams all said we have to eliminate that. And I think that is what this contract does so that you get paid for the labor you do. And so those people, the people who were paid much less, are going to get something like a 70% increase um, over the life of this contract. So it's not, it's the 25% for everybody, but there's actually many other gains, especially for the lowest paid. Yes, and I think it's worth noting that the pay increase of 25% is over and above and in addition to cost of living increases, as I understand That's, it. That is absolutely So right. it's a real 25% increase over the next five, four years. Max Page, you have a very special guest with you and us today because you and she were testifying this week at the State House in favor of a bill that it would allow teachers to public, public school teachers to strike. Why don't you introduce your co-leader or a co-leader uh, of teachers and educators, and then we'll get to what happened this week. Great. Thanks, Bill. Yes. Welcome to Deb Jeswaldo, president of the Malden Education Association. Glad to have you here, Deb. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So Deb is a president of, as I said, Malden Education Association, one of our 400 locals, and has the distinction of uh, having led um, a strike almost exactly a year ago. And maybe before we even get to the hearing that happened this week, Deb, just tell us what happened almost exactly a year ago. Um, October 17th of 2022, so almost exactly a year ago, my local, the Malden Education Association, went on strike for a fair and just contract and dignity and respect in the workplace. So we had over 700 union educators from teachers to librarians, school nurses, paraprofessionals, and assistant principals on strike in Malden. And if if you could just say very briefly, uh, maybe the the highlights, or, or rather what you know, what was the bottom line about why this couldn't get done? What were you, what were you seeking? What, what, um, wild ideas were you trying to achieve at the table that you that your members felt that you had to go on strike to achieve oh the wild ideas that we were seeking things like first aid kits in every classroom wild ideas like that um trying to get a living wage for paraprofessionals who were making between twenty two thousand and around thirty two thousand dollars a year wild ideas like that We were looking for things like making sure our assistant principals and curriculum directors had desks and chairs in their offices. Um, And actually ensuring that the city is working toward 
making sure that our students aren't being evicted during the school year. So making sure our students and their families are secure in their housing so that they know where they're sleeping every night and have stability during their academic careers in Malden and, and fair and dignified compensation for, for everyone, tuition reimbursement and paid parental leave. Those were the wild things we were looking for. And just to note for those in Western Mass, Malden is right near Boston and has been subject to the whirlwind of gentrification so that a more of a working class community, middle class community has been beset by lots of new evictions and building of new very luxury uh, apartments for um, downtown Boston. So let me, if I could just ask you to lift up one other point about this and then we'll talk also about um, the the strike hearing. So we're talking with Deb Giswalder, the president of the Malden Education Association. Deb, I think it's important to lift up um, that you mentioned about living wages. And I think you, you went through that quickly because we know the numbers well. But how much does a paraprofessional, this is a full-time paraprofessional, let's say, who works sometimes with our neediest kids, special education students who need really one-on-one -on -one care. Tell me, what was the pay that they receive in a year? Um, they could make anywhere between $22,000 to start to around $32,000. And these are the people, like you said, who work with the most needy students. They could also be licensed practical nurses, certified medical assistants, um, paraprofessionals or education support professionals do all kinds of really important jobs for some of our most vulnerable students. And what will they now make now um, after, the end, after the strike that you uh, won last year? They now make between $32,000 and around $43,000 a year. So not quite to a living wage for Essex, uh, Middlesex County rather, but almost to it. So Deb Jeswaldo from the Malden Education Association, you led a strike. Strikes of public yes. school teachers in Massachusetts are illegal. There are many who yes. oppose them saying, what about the children who will be denied an education? I'm wondering what kind of pushback you had and or reaction you had to a strike and how that did or did not reflect the uh, opposition to the right for teachers and other public employees to strike? That's a great question. And to be honest, that was something that, that I and my fellow union siblings were thinking a lot about, but we were met with little to no resistance from parents and caregivers and the general community in Malden. In fact, I, I still get a little um, misty-eyed when I think about it, but the outpouring of love and compassion and support is something that I can't even describe. There are no words to describe it, but the community lifted us up and just wrapped us in love and compassion and support. It was overwhelming and I've never seen anything like it before in my life. They were so supportive because what we did was not just for ourselves as workers. It was an act of love for our students and for the community as well, because our, we were really common good bargaining. We weren't just looking out for our own interests. We were bargaining for housing security and housing justice for our students and for student health and safety. So we were really looking out for everyone's best interests. If I can just jump in, I was there, um, out there, one of the you know, several of the rallies, Deb, and I remember speaking to one woman who had, who had never gone on strike before, probably like most people, most of the educators, and she said she was on the picket line, 
and a car drove up and she was and they started to roll down the window and she said I was really fearful that they were going to start yelling at me and they opened the window and reached out and hand some handed out some coffee and donuts and I think it's interesting that many um, members you know rightly are have, they worry about the reaction but I think what they've seen through contract fights as, as, and especially the, the strike like you led in Malden was the enormous enormous um, love and care and respect that the parents in the community have for the for the educators. Max and Max Page and Deb Jaswalo, please take a minute and tell us what happened at the hearing this week in Boston at the State House on Beacon Hill with regard to the right of teachers to strike. Let's hear from okay. you, Deb, and then from Max, or from either way. I'll just set it up now. Deb, you'll say what you said there. So there was a hearing on a bill to to change the law so that um, so that some public sector workers, not fire, not police, not um, you know, prison workers, but all other public sector workers would have the right to strike after six months of good faith negotiation. And we had UAW workers there to say why it's so important to strike SAG after the actors union workers there to say why it's important to strike. We had um, people from California where they do have the right to strike. So Deb, maybe you should have the final word and say what you lifted up at that hearing at the State House this past week. Sure, absolutely. Again, it was incredible because there was nothing but an outpouring of support to return this this human right to public school educators. I lifted up the fact that we sat across from a school committee bargaining team for six months that really didn't interact with our bargaining team at all. And we were basically backed up against a wall and we we had to take that step, a step where we we did something illegal, but we had to for ourselves and for our students and for the community. And we raised the point that taking the step and having it become legal will basically make school committees interact in a more meaningful way in the collective bargaining process, and there will be fewer strikes as a result. Thanks so much. We've been speaking with Deb Giswaldo, president of the Malden Education Association, and uh, someone who led a strike and spoke beautifully about the right to strike for all public sector workers this past week. Thanks, Deb. Thank you. Thank you, Deb, and thank you, Max Page. We'll be right back. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. 
What's Cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Winesick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at winesicknursery.com. Jay Burnham here, voice of the Massachusetts Minutemen. Touchdown, Massachusetts! I just wanted to let you know that all of the UMass football action can be heard right here on our new flagship home for Massachusetts football. It's WHMP. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. And this is Art Beat with Donabel Cassis. Donabel, the microphone and the pleasure of the introduction of our very special guest is yours. Thank you, Bill. Good morning. You know, November is an exciting month, and for sure, there's an incredible festival that you should all know about. It's opening November 3rd, and it happens throughout the entire month of November, and it's a festival so prescient and powerful um, to these times that we are experiencing. It's called A Stone's Throw, and it is a festival of visual art and performance illuminating the experiences of military and their families. So joining us today is Molly Maxner, the co-director um, of APE Gallery in Northampton and also the daughter of a Vietnam veteran. Welcome, Molly. Thank you so much. Now, I was just looking at the schedule of this festival, and it is chock full of experiences. And I'm so glad they're spread out so that hopefully you could go to all of them throughout the month. Tell us a little bit about how this show got started. And I know it's a collaboration. So if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, about a year ago, Steve Connor of Central Hampshire Veteran Services and John Parody, a veteran and veteran advocate in uh, Northampton, is uh, we got together and developed this festival in order to illuminate some of the, as you said, experiences of veterans and their family members and also to um, bring some light to the military-civilian divide and to do some work to cross that divide and to um, make space for new levels of empathy and understanding to emerge. I mean, what a powerful statement and um, service that this will bring to the general population. Now, I know there are several exhibition opportunities. We could talk about those first because, you know, some of the images that you shared with me for this event are just so compelling. So if you could tell us about the visual art portion and then we'll talk about what other things will happen. Sure. Yeah, so we have visual art in, in various locations. We have an exhibition at the New England Visionary Artists Museum called Artful Bonds. And that is really looking at work by veterans and their family members. And it's connected closely with the Warriors Art Room in East Hampton. 
Mm. And then at uh, City Hall, Memorial Hall, and Forbes Library, we're going to feature work that was created through the Creative Arts Therapy Program at the VA in Leeds, and also at Soldier On. And I mean, that, I'm sorry, I was going to say that one's close to my heart because my father, who served in Vietnam in 1969-70, uh, he got a lot of help at the VA at Ward 8 um, many 40 years ago. And so the fact that we are bringing work coming from the program at, at the VA is very meaningful. Mm. And then the final uh, visual arts exhibition is at APE, and it's called Home, War, Home. And that is bringing together the work of my father. He's done visual artwork as part of his healing process over the past eight years. And what's your father's name, Molly? Stephen. Yes, okay. Stephen Maxner. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as well as uh, interviews. We did 12 hours of interviews with veterans and family members in the Piner Valley. And we have six different sound artists making short sound pieces based on these interviews. And I've been listening to them and they are so beautiful and they really open a complex window. They challenge assumptions. They, they impel us to consider what our relationship is to the military, what our relationship is to each other as human beings. Mm. And interestingly, we also have the work of um, a man named Danny Nguyen, who was seven years old when he came to the States as a Vietnamese refugee. His family was sponsored by my parents. And he came to Northampton and, and left Saigon and went on a very challenging journey, to say the least, to arrive into my parents' basement. And he's built a, a visual piece that is uh, shedding light on that journey from the perspective mm. of a seven-year-old child. Wow. Wow. I mean, really, and I saw some of the photographs there um, that you posted. Uh, what are some of the, the visual art pieces that folks will be able to see at the exhibitions? Yes. Yeah, so the, the visual pieces will be arranged from painting, photography, in the home, war home. It is, my dad works in assemblage of all pieces that he gathered from his walks on the beach on Martha's Vineyard. Mm. And then Danny's work is uh, is a digital form, so it's projected. There'll be projections, there'll be short film, there'll be, it's really like a mosaic, both at APE and in the whole town. It's mm. like the festival is like a mosaic of mm. perspectives and lifting the voices of veterans and lifting the voices of their family members, which is sometimes a voice that is quieter in this mm. very important conversation about the ripple effects of military mm. service. Well, you know, and I also know that this is a multidisciplinary festival. You have panel discussions and poetry. Tell us about those options that people can participate in. Yeah, we're, the first weekend, which is opening weekend, we have, it's sort of a weekend of poetry. The first night is the play in Iliad, which tells the story of the poet, like the mythic poet, who is once again charged with telling the story of war. Mm. And then the next day, on Sunday, we have a poetry reading with Doug Anderson and Preston Hood, both Vietnam veterans and esteemed poets. The following two weekends, we do readings of a play called For Jude, which illuminates the stories of daughters of a Vietnam veteran. And it's going to be like a concert piece in relationship to the visual art. 
So it should wow. be a very interesting experience. Larry. And then we have two, then we have two public. Uh, we have an artist talk with Danny Noyan and myself called "Rhymes of Our Fathers," where we'll be talking about the parallel stories of our two fathers. And last, we have a dialogue with the community with veteran uh, spouses and adult children of veterans. Wow, wow, so many different perspectives and important perspectives. Um, I love that this festival is really broad. And so if you're interested in seeing this festival, it's called A Stone's Throw, a festival of visual art and performance, illuminating the experiences of military veterans and their families. It is put together through APE Gallery in Northampton in collaboration with Central Hampshire Veterans Services. Um, Molly Maxner, this is an incredible event. For more information, where do people get to go? You could go to apearts.org, A-P-E-A-R-T-S.org, and you can find all the listings of the festival and get tickets, which all are free. Oh my gosh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Molly, for sharing this event with us. It is going to be phenomenal. Thank you so much. Yes, and thank you, Donabelle. On your shoulder. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It is critical that the investigation is not limited to federal violations of gender discrimination, but includes the alleged allegations of corruption, nepotism, abuse of power, and use of position to aid Ms. Cunningham's personal business. These allegations actually require an investigation by a different body than a Title IX investigator. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. WHMP is looking for organizations that regularly distribute information about employment opportunities to job applicants or have job applicants to refer. If your organization would like to receive notification of job vacancies at our station, please notify us at Careers, WHMP Radio, 15 Hampton Avenue, Northampton, Massachusetts, 01060, phone number 413-586-7400, or email jobs at whmp.com. Saga Communications is an equal opportunity employer and encourages minorities and females to apply. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.com, a Northampton radio group station. It's 10 o'clock. Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. A day and a half after 18 people were killed in a mass shooting at a bar in a bowling alley in southern Maine, a massive manhunt for the suspect has expanded from New York to Canada. Correspondent Jerika Duncan reports. Law enforcement searched late into the night for Robert Card. With SWAT teams, canine units, and helicopters scouring his hometown, Bowdoin, Maine, at one point, officers in armored vehicles appeared to surround one home in particular that's believed to be Card's last last known address. They were there for more than an hour without explanation. Ultimately, they left without a suspect. CBS News has learned that suspect, 40-year-old Army Reservist Robert Card, used a semi-automatic assault rifle with an extended magazine and a scope. Doctors treating the wounded are dealing with the results. Richard King is chief of trauma at Central Maine Medical Center in Lewiston. This was the first time that I'd actually taken care of someone with high-velocity gunshot wounds. So to actually see them in person and see the destructive ability of those 
rounds was really quite sobering. An embattled New York congressman is expected at court on Long Island this hour. CBS's Scott McFarland. George Santos, already facing fraud charges, appears before a judge to face new accusations that he took his campaign donors' identities and used them to rack up unauthorized credit card charges. He's pleaded not guilty in the case. The Pentagon says U.S. fighter jets launched attacks in Syria overnight in retaliation for drone and missile attacks on U.S. troops in the Middle East. CBS News military analyst Jeff McCausland says he's not convinced it'll prevent more attacks. These groups probably move around, uh, come up to a base, pull up a truck, launch these rockets pretty quickly and move away. So it's unclear to me that this will actually eliminate that particular capability. And certainly Iran has the capacity to move more missiles and rockets into those areas should it desire to do so. New numbers from for the Fed to mull over as it considers another round of interest rate hikes. The Commerce Department says inflation was up 0.3 percent in September, but consumer spending was even stronger, up by 0.7 percent. Business analyst Jill Schlesinger. With inflation slowly coming down, expectations are for the Federal Reserve to take no action at the two-day policy meeting next week. You'll recognize the guy throwing out the first pitch at the opening game of the World Series in Arlington, Texas tonight. Please welcome the President of the United States. Former President George Bush, who used to own the Rangers, will do the honors when Texas hosts the D-backs. This is CBS News. If you need to hire, you need Indeed, because Indeed's all-in-one hiring solution helps you attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Visit Indeed.com credit. Texting enrolls you into reoccurring automated text messages. Consent not required to purchase. Message and data rates may apply. Hey, Dan, how you doing? Haven't seen you around the gym for a while. Yeah, I've really fallen off. Since I turned 40, I just don't get the results I used to get. Could be lower testosterone. Lower T. Yeah, I went through it a while back. Once you hit 40, your body has less free testosterone. I got Nugenics Total T, and it's made a huge difference for me. I've seen that ad on TV. Is it for real? Oh, yeah. The patented key ingredient is something called Testafin, which helps boost free and total testosterone levels to help you trim up and stay lean. And it's made a difference for you? Man, I feel like I'm in my 20s again at work, in the gym, and in the bedroom. Are they still giving out complimentary bottles for people to try it for themselves? Yeah, you just need to send them a text. Text ORDER to 42424 right now for your complimentary bottle of Nugenics Total Tea, the number one selling testosterone booster at GNC. Plus, text now and we'll include a bottle of Nugenics Thermo, our most powerful fat incinerator ever to help you get back into shape fast, absolutely free. Text ORDER to 42424. That's ORDER to 42424. Always want to peek inside the White House? There's no need to go to Washington. Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Sarah Robertson. At yesterday's sit-in inside a UMass Amherst administration building, 57 students were arrested for refusing to leave the building, demanding that the university must cut ties with the weapons manufacturer Raytheon and condemn violence against Palestinians in Gaza by the Israeli government. In a statement, the university said the protesters' demands did not align with the university's publicly stated positions. However, when the radical group from Gaza called Hamas attacked Israeli citizens earlier this month, Chancellor Reyes said the university vehemently condemned the violence. Raytheon was one of the largest employers of UMass Amherst graduates from the class of 2021. And the university has a relationship with the company that offers business students a 10% discount on master's degrees or graduate certificates with all online classes. Two young men found dead with gunshot wounds in the woods of northern Vermont have been identified as Eric White of Chicopee and Jaheem Solomon of Pittsfield. Police are investigating the deaths as homicides. 
calling it a complex investigation that they are seeking the public's help with. The men told their families they were leaving to visit the Stowe, Vermont area on October 15th and were reported missing days later. Anonymous tips regarding the case can be submitted to the Vermont State Police website. National Prescription Drug Take Back Day is this Saturday. People looking to safely dispose of unneeded medications can drop them off at any of the 14 locations in Hampshire and Franklin County on Saturday between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Those locations include several area police departments, as well as select schools and stores. Since the program began in 2011, nearly 70,000 pounds of prescription drugs have been collected nationwide. Check the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration website for more information about drop-off locations near you. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. Buzz Eisenberg is off. He will be back on Monday. We have with us in the studio Scott Cohen, who is a longtime fixture in the world of sports here in Western Massachusetts as a print journalist, as a radio commentator, as a television personality. Hmm. Scott, we're going to take a little time off from the affairs of the world, and we're going to talk sports. And in particular, we're going to talk the World Series, which is starting tonight, which for some of us, based on our histories, is actually a big deal, notwithstanding something I do want to talk to you about, which is the lack of coverage of the World Series, not a mention in today's Republican or the Daily Hampshire Gazette. Although, we have to say the newspaper record for the country, the New York Times, had a big spread on the World Series As today. they should. As they should. So, for those of our listeners who say World Series, baseball, I don't pay a lot of attention, but I do pay attention to the World Series. Tell us what we need to know. Well, uh, this is a classic uh, example, this year's World Series, between the Texas Rangers and the Arizona Diamondbacks. Um, you know, I like to say, uh, I like to use this uh, line for many, many things, but it certainly applies to this. Bill, with these two teams, you are not going to be able to tell the players without a scorecard. <laughs> right, because we haven't heard of them? We haven't heard of them. Um, I, you know, I, I was, you know, I was just, just reading because I wanted to get the percentages right. I guess, um, I guess Texas had a 42% chance of making it to the World Series when the season began, and the Diamondbacks were something like 38 so uh, these two teams were not supposed to be here. Uh, some will say that they don't have any business being here, but they've, they've walked the walk as, and talked the talk as we, we do in this room every day. And um, they've made their way there. And what's really interesting about it is this is a warm weather World Series. Yes, we're not going to have to worry about people freezing out in center field players freezing on the base path this year. We are not. And, you know, we've, um, we've certainly uh, had our share of, you know, fairly recent success with, um, with the Red Sox. And, you know, and I've, uh, two, of the, two of the most fun years I ever had covering baseball was 2003 and 2004, when it was, you know, the Yankees and the Red Sox in the ALCS. And um, I got to tell you, man, you, it's, it's, it's cold. We know it's cold. <laughs> and if the if the World Series was was in Boston, uh, you know, today or next week, um, we've got November weather, and we're not going to have that this year. Uh, Arlington, Texas, and and Phoenix, Arizona, it's going to be warm. 
Yeah, well, there are a lot of people listening who would say, who cares about yes, the weather? Just bring the World just Series, bring the World Series back, back home. To, yeah. That said, I am interested in this aspect of the World Series, Scott. And it is that these teams, two years ago, were terrible teams. Yep. They lost 100 games. I don't mean they were bad. I mean they were terrible. And yet these organizations managed to reconstruct lineups and teams. And even if you, they're not the best team in terms of the uh, record for the entire baseball season, they were really good teams. They have some spectacular athletes on them. And I'm interested to know how does an organization go from worst to best in a very short amount of time? Well, I, I think in um, one of the, I mean, and, and one of the interesting things about both of these teams that, that you know that you just alluded to, they're they're a good mix of young and old, both of them, and so you know uh, the guy who's going to start tonight for the Rangers, Nate Evaldi, um, you know we know him. Yeah, why can't the Red Sox get players like that? <laughs> um, okay, for our listeners who don't know, want to explain that joke? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, there was a, a former colleague, a uh, longtime um, uh, Boston. Uh, television guy Bob Lobel, uh, he coined that phrase like, you know, 30 years ago when uh, all of a sudden teams were uh, plucking our Red Sox players and they would go on to be stars somewhere else and then they'd come back and they would beat us. And then it was like, why can't the Red Sox get players like that? And Nate Evaldi is one of those players. And he is one of those players. He's going to start game one. Um, he is 4-0 and in the postseason. He has not lost yet. Um, Max Scherzer uh, pitches for uh, the Texas Rangers. He was hurt for most of the year, but he's back. I mean, that's a guy that everybody knows. So, you know, you get a couple of players like that, and then there's a bunch of players like Adalis Garcia. It's like, who is this guy? And he just single-handedly, uh, he was a one-man gang in the American League Championship Series. And, you know, even a dyed-in-the-wool baseball fan would be hard-pressed to admit honestly, that he knows who that is. And now everybody does. So both teams have a good mix of young and old. And, you know, that's, it's all about chemistry. It's about luck, you know, gets, getting some of these players in your farm system that do indeed pan out to the major league level, and then mixing in some good veterans along the way. It's, 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 a, it's a very, um, very well-known, um, you know, way to go about it, but there's a lot of luck involved too. So Los Angeles is not in the World Series. New York is not in the World Series. Neither the New York team is in the World Series. They are not. The Boston, Phillies aren't in the World Series. Boston is not in the World Series. St. Louis is not in the World nope. Series. The big market teams are not in the World Series. And I'm wondering whether or not that significantly diminishes baseball as the national game because I think it, this World Series will attract, frankly, Fewer listeners no, and viewers. There's no question about that. I mean, that is the. Um, listen, I was pulling for I was pulling for the Phillies uh, to beat Arizona because uh, Philadelphia's got you know they that stadium uh, uh, Citizens Bank Park is just I mean it's a it's a zoo. Um, they're they've got uh, Kyle Schwaber. Um, uh, why can't the Red Sox get players like <laughs> Kyle Schwaber? <laughs> Kyle Schwaber and um, uh, what's his name? They're their big star. I'm drawing a blank here. But anyway, yeah, the, you, I, I think it's important for, for big league uh, big league market uh, teams to be in the mix because it just keeps things interesting. But, you know, on the flip side, Arizona just made mincemeat out of the 100-win uh, L.A. Dodgers. with their The Dodgers won 100 games. 
and their payroll is out of control, and Arizona just mopped the floor with them. So, you know, yeah. But to your point, yes, you need those cities to be involved for everyone to be involved. Which is interesting because when it comes to, for example, and in comparison, the Super Bowl, there are many people who do not play, pay attention to pro football. Yep. But come the Super Bowl, they pay attention. They do. And what seems to me to be reflected by the lack of local coverage in, in general of the World Series is that... The World Series doesn't have that allure anymore. It does not. Baseball doesn't capture people in its magnificent finale the way the Super Bowl does. No, it well, and so uh, to your point about the Super Bowl, the, I think the big difference is is that it's a one day event. You know, it's on it's on Sunday. It's in prime time now. You know, everybody can. It's one game, one day that everybody can just get together. Where baseball, it it takes some time. And then along those lines, baseball is, it's not a, it, it's a, it's a slog. It's a thinking person's game. Um, you know, I, uh, my, uh, my girlfriend, uh, not a super big sports fan, but I've really turned her on to the Red Sox. And, you know, I've taught her the difference between a hitter's count and a pitcher's count. And she's very proud of herself now <laughs> that she knows that. But it's like these. It, there's so much nuance in baseball. It's not something that 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 slaps you across the face. And we, you know, in this day and age, we need to be constantly, you know, um, we need to be on the edge of our seat all the time. And baseball is not like that. Although baseball has done a lot to be a faster. Uh, more engaging they have. game. The rules have changed, and it's made a difference. Sure. And you know what the other thing, too, is, Bill? I think if you... Um, I think the average sports fan um, knows who LeBron James is. Uh, they know who Tom Brady is. Um, but Although we'd point out he's retired now. He's retired now. They know... Finally. You can, you can pick those guys out of a lineup, okay? Mike Trout who is, you know, arguably the, one of the biggest, has been one of the biggest star in baseball for the last decade, he could walk down the street, in, um, down Main Street, in downtown Northampton, and nobody would know who he is. That's the other problem. The stars in baseball are not commodities like the other sports are. It's, they're just not. Well... They're paid a lot of money. Why, they are. Why not? Where's the publicity? Where's the uh, uh, iconic kind of uh, attention that football players and basketball players receive? Yeah. I, you know, I think maybe, again, you know, a, a baseball game takes a long time to play. Uh, it's a 162-game season. So, you know, you can, you can be there for opening day and for the first week of the season. Then you can kind of forget all about it and maybe pick it up at the All-Star break. How, how are the teams doing? And then forget about it again and then pick it up in September and October when the games really mean something. Um, there's, there's, what, 18 games in an NFL season, 18 weeks? So it's, it, it's hard to keep track of. You have to, you've got to dedicate your time and energy to following baseball the proper way. And we just don't do that anymore. Are these going to be exciting games, in your opinion? Um, yeah, I mean, I certainly, I certainly hope so. Um, I'm glad the Astros aren't in it. Oh yes, thank God for small favors. Yeah, the Astros God. who cheated the, the 
deserving New York Yankees out of a world championship. And listen, if the Red Sox were winning, you know, won the the, Amer- the American League Championship Series seven years in a row, we'd be all for that. I was just ready for something different, you know? So you got Nate Evaldi tonight. There's the Red Sox connection. It's a new team. Max Scherzer, again, Max Scherzer is, is an all-star and a bulldog. And then, you know, if you can, if you can expand your mind and look at the Diamondbacks and go like, all right, let's see what these guys really are all about. But it's not, a, it's not a slap across the face World Series. Okay. So for the Diamondbacks, for all those who don't know, this is a baseball team. Hey, it's a baseball team, in Arizona. and a Diamondback <laughs> is a snake, in case you didn't know that. <laughs> well, I think we'll leave it there. Scott Cohen, always so great to speak with you. Thank you so much for your insights, and we appreciate your sports coverage, particularly your local sports coverage so very much. Yeah, thanks a lot, Bill. I appreciate being in this morning. to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Power to the people. Tag, you're it. Tom Hartman, weekdays at noon. Tom Hartman program, your home for the resistance, commentary, conversation, and common cause. Join me, Tom Hartman, every weekday from noon to 3, right here on WHMP. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. Hi, I'm Jane Wolf, Executive Vice President of Residential Lending, asking you to come on over to the co-op. It just makes sense. And dollars, Jane. I'm Angie McClay, Residential Loan Underwriter, and we want you to know we've extended our mortgage promo, so there's more time to save on your mortgage closing costs. That's right. There's still time to save up to $1,250 when you obtain a pre-approval from GCB. We make it easy to apply online at bestlocalbank.com or at any of our branch locations. Our local, experienced mortgage team is happy to help walk you through the process and answer any questions you may have. So apply online or come see us in person and receive a $750 closing cost credit plus an additional $500 when we pre-approve you. Close by November 30th, be a new first mortgage customer or refinance from another loan provider. Minimum $100,000 loan, subject to change or end without notice. Other conditions apply. See bank for details. Greenfield Cooperative Bank is an equal housing lender, member FDIC, member DIF. You can count on your friends at the co-op. Attorney Joe Cordell. Business owners and professionals face special challenges in divorce court. In addition to everything else going on, they have to contend with allegations that they are earning more than they are, coupled with claims on their business or practice itself. Clients with assets depend on their divorce lawyer skills in these matters, and that's why it's so important to hire someone that has those skills. Schedule an appointment with one of Cordell & Cordell's Boston-area attorneys. 10 Cabot Road, Suite 210, Medford, Massachusetts, 02155. Yesterday, I was not here, but I am so pleased that we can nonetheless have our half-faith segment with Carol Bull, who is the pastor at the United Church of Ware. Carol, are you with us? The answer to that may be Dan. 
The answer is yes. Carol Bull is with us. Thank you very much. The magic, the magic of technology. Yes, we can. Uh, Reverend Carol Bull, I would like to know uh, what you are telling your congregants this week about war and peace. And that question always arises when there's a conflagration, which is, how does God allow this? What do you tell people? Yeah, so we've been, I've been preaching from Matthew. I better turn off my Skype, maybe. Yes, that'd be helpful, because we hear three of you now. Okay, there you go. All right. Now you can hear me still? Yes, that's great. Okay. So we've, I've been preaching from Matthew, and, you know, as we uh, move forward, um, just last week we talked about the good and the bad, that, that God is present in all of the good and all of the bad. And um, if we think we're going to be without one of those, uh, we're in trouble uh, because we are... God is present in all in all things, and um, and I think we also talk. We've all, we're also talking. We will talk about um, acceptance of the world the way it is, and um, that's a hard thing to accept things as they are now. Whether it's war, peace. Uh, you know, reading the New York Times this morning. Um, uh, just was, you know, it, it's excruciating to read. It's painful. So, uh, you know, the best thing we can do is to continue to practice our spirituality, which is how we feel connected to God or a higher purpose in our lives. Um, and we have the shoulders of giants to stand on. That's another week. Um, you know, raise me up uh, so that I can stand on the mountain. So, um, you know, we ha- I have uh, Martin Luther King Jr. right in front of me here. I've got Gandhi over my shoulder. Uh, and, you know, Gandhi, as we know, uh, and if you haven't seen the movie Gandhi, it's a great thing to revisit now, even though it's an imperfect movie like all art is, can be imperfect. Um you know, he began his letters, my friend, comma, the enemy. Um, so he always had that much higher level of a view on things. And, um, and we have to, you know, continue to trust in, in the God of our understanding or a higher purpose or whatever makes life makes meaning for us. I know not everyone uses that word God, and that's fine. Um, you know, but how do we, so, so we need to keep doing our spiritual practices and take good care of ourselves. Uh, and, um, you know, the, the, I think today is the vote in the UN on a ceasefire. So, um, you know, we have high hopes. So we, we keep hope, uh, Haydenville has a beautiful song they sing, keep hope alive, you know. And um, that, that's our job in these times, is to keep hope alive. But that doesn't mean we don't have the other range of feelings that we have. Of course, we get angry. Uh, we move into um, a kind of unforgiving anger sometimes. Uh, we feel powerless and scared. 
and terrified and um and and we yet we continue to do the work that we're called to do locally uh in whatever way we can do it in love and kindness to others in the midst of all of this going on and um so I, I hope that's helpful to hear. It, it is helpful to hear, but I want to uh, press you on one point here, which is that sure. uh, religious leaders often talk about a personal relationship with God, and that yep. seems to imply as if there's some communication between uh, mm-hmm. individuals, human beings, and God. And mm-hmm. I think you're talking about something very different when you talk about accessing uh, our spiritual, uh, our beings, uh, not as a let me talk to God, or are you? Explain that to me if you could. Yeah, um, there's a line here from M.L. King Jr. We must learn that to expect God to do everything while we do nothing is not faith, but superstition. So um, we have to, I guess. You know, I certainly, we, I mean, I can talk about my experience, which is that sometimes I feel connected and sometimes I don't. That is most, I mean, I did this in the hospital for 13 years. Most of the people I talk to do not always feel eternally connected. Some do. Um, and what what is that about? The fiber of that is different for each of us. You know, it's not the exact same thing. I was talking to somebody the other day who talked about doing rote prayers you know, that, that's all they've been doing. There's been no feeling, no sense of connection. But they just keep repeating those prayers, hopefully that someday they'll light up. So I think well, however we can flip the switch uh, to, uh, to the lightness and the beauty of the world and, and whatever we believe uh, is the origin of that um, and keep those lights on during these really, really hard times. Um, so we don't go anywhere alone. I don't. I don't believe we're ever alone. Although we may feel alone, and um, you know, but all of these things, especially I was talking with some a group of clergy yesterday, and um, and about the shooting in Maine, and um, you know, just in small communities, things are different, and um, because everybody knows everybody else. And um, and yet this person uh, apparently fell through all kinds of cracks, got got some mental health care, and then and then I don't know what happened, but um, none of us do. I don't think we know yet. But just it's just sad. There's there's wounds at the center of a lot of this violence. Which brings me, Carol Bull, a pastor at the United Church of Weir, to the next question I really want to ask you, which is, how have these events? affected your congregation and what you tell your congregation about God. The, the shootings in Maine, I think, really uh, affect us because that community of Lewiston seems so familiar to us. It's so close to what we have here in yeah. western Massachusetts. And the, the horrific images that we see mm-hmm. of suffering and the deaths of children and elderly people, the massive destruction in Gaza as well as the uh, horrifying terrorist attack on Jewish kibbutz and uh, a festival of life. I mean, how does has that and does that affect your congregation 
and your relationship with the congregation? Yeah, so um, one of the things that happens, I think, is that people start to get a little splintered. You know, they start sort of not knowing their own strengths anymore. You know, they feel like, oh, my gosh, you know, what, what is going They have a lot of questions. What is going on? Um, and I, as their pastor, I, I can just be honest. I can say that if you look at history, this stuff has always gone on. There's been different versions of it. But um, it's, it's, in, it's written into human history, this, this violence of others, right? And, um, and you know, I, I believe in nonviolence. I've told them that. I've preached on many of the greatest, the towering giants of nonviolence and across the world. I've preached on them, you know, done a whole sermon on Thich Nhat Hanh and a whole new sermon, you know. So I, I just kind of keep, that's been... Uh, an answer for me in my life is that we don't keep walk. We, we do what we can to never walk down the path of violence in thought, uh, word, or deed. And if we can keep ourselves uh, as individuals uh, onto that and keep hope alive, we will get through this. But the this you know, it, there's a lot of complicity in the United States with violence. You know, we're the largest arms shipper in the world. And um, that's something that, let alone, you know, gun laws and things like that. So, um, but we, we need to stop seeing each other as the enemy, even if they have different views. Um, so actually in November, we're going to have a Braver Angels workshop at my church. A very interesting and prophetic, I believe, organization that's working with people to gain skills to be able to sit at the dinner table with those who they, whose views they abhor. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I just try to keep being the voice of Jesus, who, uh, after all, was a Palestinian Jew and who um, taught nonviolence. We have been speaking with Carol. Carol Bull, who is the pastor of the United Church of Ware. This has been our Have Faith segment. Reverend Bull, thank you so much for being with us today and for your words. Of course. Thank you, Bill. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Good morning for WHMP News. I'm Sarah Robertson. At yesterday's sit-in inside a UMass Amherst administration building, 57 students were arrested for refusing to leave the building, demanding that the university must cut ties with the weapons manufacturer Raytheon and condemn violence against Palestinians in Gaza by the Israeli government. In a statement, the university said the protesters' demands did not align with the university's publicly stated positions. However, when the radical group from Gaza called Hamas attacked Israeli citizens earlier this month, Chancellor Ray said the university vehemently condemned the violence. Raytheon was one of the largest employers of UMass Amherst graduates from the class of 2021. And the university has a relationship with the company that offers business students a 10% discount on master's degrees or graduate certificates, with all online classes. Two young men found dead with gunshot wounds in the woods of northern Vermont have been identified as Eric White of Chicopee and Jaheem Solomon of Pittsfield. 
Police are investigating the deaths as homicides, calling it a complex investigation that they are seeking the public's help with. The men told their families they were leaving to visit the Stowe, Vermont area on October 15th and were reported missing days later. Anonymous tips regarding the case can be submitted to the Vermont State Police website. National Prescription Drug Take Back Day is this Saturday. People looking to safely dispose of unneeded medications can drop them off at any of the 14 locations in Hampshire and Franklin County on Saturday between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Those locations include several area police departments, as well as select schools and stores. Since the program began in 2011, nearly 70,000 pounds of prescription drugs have been collected nationwide. Check the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration website for more information about drop-off locations near you. I'm Lisa Riley. Join me every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. here on WHMP as we share stories that shine a light on justice-involved individuals or just underdogs in the game of life, their struggles, their successes, and the many resources and opportunities available for those who are hustling to carve a new path and prove that failure isn't final. So unlock your future, rewrite your story. This is The Hustler Files. From the Low Country, Charleston, South Carolina, Ranky Tanky. I got letter from Tennessee. Shake it. From New York, the star of 20 Feet from Stardom, Lisa Fisher. Ranky Tanky with very special guest Lisa Fisher, Wednesday, November 8th at UMass. Global ambassadors for the Gula community and culture of South Carolina's low country, Ranky Tanky played President Biden's inauguration. You've heard Ranky Tanky on Fresh Air, on Colbert, and the Today Show. Lisa Fisher's been on stage with the Rolling Stones for 40 years. Get tickets now at the UMass Fine Arts Center box office. Ranky Tanky with Lisa Fisher. Wednesday, November 8th, Bowker Auditorium, UMass Amherst. I know, I know. I always say, why buy it when you can rent it? But maybe you do need to own a tile saw. Maybe a few folding tables out in the garage isn't a bad idea. Come to the auction this Thursday at TJ's Rental. Tools and tents, tables and chairs, china, cotton candy, and popcorn machines. Haven't you always wanted to own a dunk tank? How about a bounce house? Tons of bargains. Huge auction. This Thursday at TJ's Rental, Route 9 in Hadley. Preview beginning at 8. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. Again, Buzz is off today, but he will be back with us on Monday. This is our regular time with Paul Bockelman, who is the town manager of the town of Amherst, and we are so pleased that he could be with us today and that he has with him and us, Kat Newman. We'll find out about how we're related in just a moment. (laughs) Uh, uh, It will be a surprise to me, too, but I can't hardly (laughs) wait. I'm really pleased that uh, Paul uh, Bockelman and Kat Newman could be with us today because I want to follow up on what is happening with Cress. And Amherst was a leader, I guess now three years ago, when many communities became involved in the issue of alternatives to police response. How can civilians respond? 
how can we reduce the number of interactions between the police and civilians that are unnecessary? How can we get the police to focus on things that the police are really good at and allow other people to focus on the responses to situations that others, social workers, psychologists, helping professionals are really good at? And there was a lot of publicity and a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of hope. And Northampton followed. Northampton was criticized for not being as, well, as far along in this process as Amherst was. And Crest now has received a lot of publicity because the leadership at Crest uh, has been, I was going to say replaced, but that's not quite tr true, has been uh, uh, taken from those positions, or at least there is no uh, permanent head of Crest at this point. So I want to explore these issues with Paul Bockelman and Kat Newman. Kat is, a, uh, is the Crest Implementation Manager and a member of the interim leadership team. But let's start back at the beginning. Uh, Paul Bockelman, Town Manager, what is Crest and how did it come to be? And what does it stand for, by the way? It's an acronym. Sure, great. Well, thanks for having me again. I really appreciate that. So CREST stands for the Community, Community Responders for Equity, Safety, and Service. And there's all three elements are important, equity, safety, and service in, in the, uh, the, the mission of the department. Uh, what's different about CRESS is that it was envisioned by our Community Safety Working Group to be placed as a separate department independent of police, but in public safety. Most of the other departments you're talking about, like Northampton planted theirs in the public health department. Different approaches, no one, you know, both are legitimate responses to the needs that you articulated so uh, well in terms of why, we're, why cities and towns are taking this, this, these initiatives. It's really about getting the right response at the right time. You know, before Crest, we had, uh, one response, which was a police officer with a cruiser, whether you had a person running around with a gun or a kitten in a tree or someone sleeping in a bank vestibule, you, you don't need that level of response for every one of those calls. So having an alternative service available to the community was, was something that the town of Amherst decided it was going to invest in. So community responders, equity, safety, and service uh, with an anti-racist lens on all of our interactions. So those are the key pieces. Okay. Tell me a bit, if you would, please, what is the composition of Crest? How many people? What is their training? What is their background? What are their backgrounds? Mm -hmm. Sorry, we'll try to do better on the verb tense, ver <laughs> verb <laughs> agreements there. Um, but what is, who are they? Yeah. So we swore in our, we hired first a director, and then, uh, and then we had our um, responders all sworn in in July of last year. So that's just over a year old, a year and three months, basically. We have, it's uh, funded at eight responders um, and a director and a, um, a program assistant. And then we also received a major grant from the State Department of Public Health, and we are implementing that grant as one way to support the development of CREST. So there's eight, eight responders who are budgeted for. There is no director, permanent director of CREST at this point. No. So uh, our our Director has uh, submitted his resignation, uh, and he will. And so, when he's been on leave for a period of time, recognizing that there was clearly a vacuum in leadership with him, with him, with um, him being on leave, that's why I established the interim leadership team. 
interim leadership team uh, sort of uh, had had the, our fire chief on it, who was here last time. Uh, we had our being led by our DEI director, Pamela Nolan Young, and also Sergeant Janet, Diversity, Equity, and Diversity, Inclusion. Equity, and, thank you. And we had a representative from the police department on it, which is they were all representatives when we were envisioning Crest in the first place. They were all all fully supportive of the Crest program. And then Kat Newman, who is our um, who has been working with Crest since the very beginning, was also part of it of the of the interim leadership team. Okay, Kat Newman, we're not related, as far as I know. As far as I know, same. But oh. hopefully, you like Paul Newman and good pasta. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you mean our Uncle Paul. Uh, yes, <laughs> of course. Um, I, I would like to know, is Cress functioning at this point? Yeah, we're functioning. Um, so to date, we've had, um, for our recorded data, we've had we've responded to about 775 calls. Um, and we're we're busy. You know, I think the, the beauty of this work is that there are always people to help and always people that, that want to receive and both give that help. Um, so I think even amidst sort of the... Um, the current situation, that doesn't mean that lives stop and the work stops. Who decides when Crest gets a call? And let me be very specific. In Northampton, dispatch is not part of the police department, and it hasn't been for years and years and years. And therefore, when dispatch gets a call, 911 goes to dispatch. It doesn't go to the police department, much to most people's surprise. Um, in Amherst, I understand, a 911 call will go to the police department, but if I'm wrong, correct me. And then who decides whether the police are called or Cress is called? Yeah, so kind of a two-part approach to that. So you are correct in that oftentimes folks will speak about 911, and the bulk of calls um, that actually are going in, so within our police station, it also houses our emergency um, communication center, which is our dispatch center. And so calls um, that are going in oftentimes are actually going into the business line to the police department, which are a bulk of those calls. There's a very small fraction that are actually 911 calls. And of those 911 calls, looking at the criteria of calls that our crest responders would respond to, that's actually very little. Those are things like domestics, um, uh, you know, violence, crime, things like that. And so um, what we are in the process of doing right now is really looking at um, sort of call types and what can come through in that dispatch line. And so we haven't yet turned on that dispatch switch. Um, we also have, I'll let Paul speak a little bit about um, a non-fiscal grant opportunity that we have through the Harvard Kennedy Foundation um, that will sort of help get to that. But then to answer your other part of your question, how do we kind of determine those calls? Right now, um, in the meantime, a lot of the calls come through either Sometimes it's over email. Sometimes it's a walk-in. Um, sometimes it's through. Um, we have 22 different town departments, so oftentimes other towns will call us. Or other town departments, excuse me, will call us and say, "Hey, we have this thing. Can Crest help with it?" Um, so it's coming in through our through our business line right now um, for a portion of it. Okay, so I, I want I want to ask Paul about exactly what he just spoke about, but I do want to understand this. Crest was envisioned as an alternative to police response. And there are situations that in the past you would send out, other towns would send out or cities would send out a police officer or police officers to respond. The idea was not all of those calls need a police response. An unarmed civilian response could be not only more effective but less dangerous because there are no guns in, involved. And there are trained professionals 
in these uh, 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 situations that police are not necessarily trained for at all. So is that happening? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'll give you a recent example. Um, we actually, so our the Jones Library um, oftentimes will have a lot of folks that um, may come into the library, right? Libraries can be really safe spaces for a lot of reasons for folks. And there are times where they might need some assistance. And to speak to exactly what you're saying, they may not want a police officer there. So we actually established um, a rapport with them over this last year, and we actually have a Cress office, which is a big deal because space is hard to come by in town, um, that's operating out of that. And so we in this uh, we had a conversation the other day with, with dispatch, and they had sort of said, oh, you know, we've actually seen a downtick in calls coming from the Cress, or coming from the Jones Library. And we explained that we have an office there. So there was something the other day uh, where somebody had called, and they said there's somebody you know, yelling out front, like, can a crest responder do that? And our crest responders went up and they spoke to the person and they said, hey, like, you know, you, you're yelling, like, there's a lot going on. It seems like, would you like to talk to us? And they said, yeah, I would. Actually, I'm yelling because I have a lot of feelings. And so our responders sat with that person for an hour and really effectively de-escalated that person. Um, our responders are trained in um, a wide variety of different um, sort of modalities, but one of the main modalities is motivational interviewing and de-escalation. And that person said at the end of that interaction, like, oh, I'm really glad you weren't a police officer. Like, I'm glad Cress was here. So it's definitely working and it's definitely, you know, up and running. Does the person who is seeking assistance for probably someone else call 911 or do they call Cress? So anytime that something is new, right, it takes a little bit of time for other folks to kind of learn what it what it is. Um, I think about this oftentimes. I started, I helped create the Amherst Ambassador Program when we had the pandemic happening in town. Um, and it took a while for folks to realize kind of what that program was. And then when they would interact with some of our ambassadors or kind of hear what the support they would do, they said, this is amazing. And then word of mouth sort of spread, right? And so um, I think similarly, people will often when they know that Cress exists and because of the publicity that you you kind of alluded to earlier and things like that, they often will give a call to Cress and they'll say, hey, this is kind of a, a weird situation. Is this something a Cress responder could respond to? Um, you'll notice I'm wearing a gray shirt. And so all of our uniforms are very intentionally gray because we, we walk a really fine line between uh, we are public safety, but many of the needs and things like that fall in social services, right? So we sort of fill the gaps or the in-between the non-black and white space, if you will. Um, and so oftentimes folks will say, hey, is this a Crest call? And our kind of approach is we want to be helpful. So we would make a pass at that. Okay, um, so let me give you a hypothetical. Sure. Two people are arguing. They're on the street. It looks like it's getting heated. Um, someone calls 911 because they don't know Cress's number and they're not thinking they would want someone to show up to be helpful. The call goes, I take it now to the police department. Does the police department acting as dispatch then have the option to say, I'll send an officer or I'll send Cress? So we are not yet fully on dispatch. And so they would not necessarily field that call to us. That would be a call once we are on dispatch that they would send to us. And it also, your your question, while it seems very simple in nature, is actually more complex. It depends on the call volume coming in, right? So there have been times where if there's a lesser call volume, we had a call at a local uh, last year at a local um, store uh, where it was kind of quieter in town and the uh, then police chief reached out and said, hey, this actually would be a better call suited for Cress and then Cress got involved. Um, so 
So let me turn back to Paul Bockelman, town manager, town of Amherst. Is Crest working at this point? Is it effective in your judgment? Yes, and I think, you know, we're on track. You know, we are are doing things differently than other communities are doing. Uh, This is not a co-response model. It's an independent response model, just as you described. We are in communication with um, departments like this throughout the country. Durham, North Carolina is our most uh, aligned department. And so... And so they take about one and a half to two and a half years to get onto dispatch. So we're we're at the one year, three month mark. So we're we're pretty much on tack, track. We believe we'll be taking dispatch calls by the end of the calendar year. We're pretty much tracking to that end. So we will do it. Do that. We are responding to calls and proactively reaching out to people. This is Dan. Uh, has the mission changed from when you initially started? the creation of Crest to where it is now, meaning over this year and three months, has the vision changed because, you know, you had an idea and now you've implemented it and whatever is happening on the ground has caused the mission to to adapt? I think the core principles stay the same. We've learned a lot in the last year. We are just talking to our responders who are doing the work. We're learning a lot from them about what they think is valuable and what they don't think is valuable. Um, we're in conversation with other, Kat mentioned the Harvard Government Performance Lab. So we are one of the few communities that have been invited to participate in that. And the entire um, uh, discussion this year is about dispatch because it's a thing that of all the communities are all struggling with. Houston, you know, Durham, all these different communities are all having the same conversation. So it's, and I, I think... What I tell my colleagues, all the other municipal managers, and I've done this at public sessions with, with them, every community is going to have a crust-type thing. Like It'll be a Northampton model, it'll be an Amherst model, something, because there is a gap in service that's been put on the police department unfairly in many ways. And even though our police officers are highly trained, um, it's not, that's not what their core responsibility is. So I think every, every town, every community is going to have one of these departments, and they are. They're all building them. We're going to continue our conversation with Paul Bockelman, who's the town manager of the town of Amherst, and Kat Newman, who is a Crest implementation manager. More about alternatives to police response is right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. It wasn't necessary, and it probably wasn't even appropriate on the one hand. I don't want that to sound like I don't support schools. I have a long history of supporting schools, certainly longer than any one of those city councilors. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information and the Arts. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. Are you looking for space to host a private event? The Hangar Pub and Grill has you covered. Our Amherst, Westfield, and Pittsfield locations are perfect for birthday parties, reunions, corporate events, and more. Customizable menu options make party planning a breeze at an affordable price. Enjoy our award-winning wings along with our other in-house favorites. 
And don't forget the Amherst Brewing beer. Visit hangarpub.com events to book today. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member Bill Newman. Rutabagas, sweet potatoes, turnips, and leeks. Local produce is rooting its way to the co-op every day. At the co-op meat counter, try coffee-rubbed hanger steak, a delicious mix of sweet and bold heat. New recipe and you need just a pinch of this herb or that spice? Get just the right amount in the co-op's bulk department. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Amherst Town Manager Paul Bockelman and Amherst Cress Implementation Manager Kat Newman. We have been talking about Cress, alternatives to police response. And let me back up for one second because part of the reason Cress has been so much in the news is that it does not have a director at this point. Is when what can you tell us about when that position is likely to be filled. Paul? Sure. So we have advertised for the crust director position. And so we're putting the word out there. If you are interested in serving as crust director, please submit your application through the town's website. And so we're hoping, you know, the, the implementation team is interim purposely. They all understand that and want it to be an interim situation. They're not making long-term decisions, but we're anxious to get a new director in there. There's been some criticism of the interim team because Cress was developed, conceived of, as an alternative to police response, responses. And uh, you have on the implementation team, the chief and the fire chief and a lot of people in public safety, um, that Cress was supposed to be an alternative too. So that seemed a bit inconsistent. Can you square that circle it, for it's us? It's not inconsistent because it's a part of our public safety department. And, and before Cress was Cress, we had our implementation, the conception team was the fire chief, the police chief, the DEI person at the time, dispatch, dispatch and also the co-chairs of our community safety working group. So it was a communicate, it was a conversation that everybody had. We have to have police and fire um, and EMS all supporting this. Okay, so this is sort of getting the team back together. It's different people, but yes. Okay, so I would like to go back to Kat Newman, if I might, and see if I can understand a little better uh, how Cress works and or will work. You say it's not a co-response model. It's not a police officer and someone else. Um, although various models say we'll send out helping professionals, but the police may be available as backup. So explain to us, if you would, please, how this either does work or will work in Amherst. Mm -hmm. So really you're talking about two different models, which is a co-response and um, you could have what's a, a parallel response or an alternative response, right? Um, kind of three, if you will. And so Crest will always independently respond to a call. If something becomes violent or a crime is taking place, we may have um, police come in. Or similarly, if we respond to something and we realize, oh, this is an active fire or this is a uh, very serious medical condition, we will have our fire and our EMS department come in. Um, but very intentionally, right, um, thinking about the ways that people interpret and understand policing differently, right? Some people, it might be really comforting to have a police cruiser come up. Some people, that is not. And so for a co-response where you often will see a police officer and a, a licensed social worker, um, they will respond together. 
oftentimes that actually just looks like an extension of policing for people. And so for crest responders, we very intentionally will never actually, you'll never see a crest responder um, exit a police cruiser. Okay, so reason. who decides if it's not dispatch? This would really appreciate clarifying this. Mm-hmm. If it's not dispatch deciding I'm going to call send out Cress or I'm going to send out a police officer, who's deciding who goes in response to that 911 call? It, it will be dispatch. It will be dispatch. Yes, because we will be taking dispatch calls in the very near future. I see. So dispatch will have the op- opportunity and the ability to dispatch what it is. Those conversations with our dispatchers and our dispatch lead team are, ha- are happening right now with between Cress and the dispatch teams. And in the same way that they have basically criteria that says this is when we would send fire, this is when we would send PD, they have those same um, communication call types that would then say this is when we would you know, choose to send Cress as well. Okay, last, last question. A 911 call from, in, in from someone in Amherst in the future will go to dispatch or will go to the police? Dispatch. Dispatch. Our communication center, which is dispatch, is located in the police department. All calls go there. They have all the redundancies. They have the emergency connections. That's where we want all of our calls to go. There will be an independent number that always goes to the Crest Department, but from other experiences in other cities and towns, people tend not to use that. Right, because they see something, and our instinct is to call 911. So 911 calls in Amherst will soon, when... Go, go, go we to, anticipate by the end of the calendar year. We'll go to dispatch, and dispatch will have the opportunity to send out crests, police officers, some combination. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. I appreciate the clarification. I really do. Thank you for the question. We have been speaking with Kat Newman, who is the Crest Implementation Manager. Great family. To, I'm really looking forward to Thanksgiving, <laughs> Kat. And Paul Bachelman, Town Manager. Thank you both so very much. Really appreciate Thank it. You, Thank Bill. you, My name is Silas Koff. I have long been a friend of Riverside Industries in East Hampton. For more than 50 years, they have empowered and supported adults with developmental disabilities. People are treated with dignity and respect, and the Riverside team helps them to reach their goals and even find employment in our area. You may not realize it, but you encounter people every day in our community that receive training and support from Riverside Industries. To learn more about the fine work that Riverside Industries does, go to rsi.org. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls. WHMP.